Today we are going to talk about a complex topic, pain. Dr. Thanos, our guest, talks about MDT as a biopsychosocial framework. He explains how MDT fits in the biopsychosocial framework and its cornerstones. We also talk about the evidence practice gap in the biopsychosocial model, and he analyzes the drivers of pain and disability to help us understand practical examples of action to take and what to watch for when assessing and treating patients. So stick around. This is PT Pro Talk. My name is Mariana Parks, physical therapist and your host. Our guest today is Dr. Thanos Contos, and he's a physical therapist, has a master's in pain science, is McKenzie diplomat, and a member of the McKenzie Institute International Faculty. I hope you enjoyed the show. Give your clinic admins and therapists the tools they will need to excel. Give them systems built for therapists with their patients in mind. Systems for physical therapists, the only EMR with a dedicated members network. Hi, Thanos. Welcome to PT Pro Talk. How are you? Hello, Mariana. I'm fine. Thank you. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm happy to have you here. And today we're going to talk about a complex topic. But before we jump right in, just tell us a little bit about yourself, your career, and how did you get to where you are right now? Yeah. So I graduated from physical therapy school in about 2012, as I remember and started working uh, in the field of acute uh, sports injuries management. Um, I had a terrible episode of neck pain and arm pain. And uh, at that point of time, a good friend of mine who was credentialed in MDT assessed me and proposed some exercises. And that was it for me. I said, I want to learn this. Uh, became credentialed in uh, 2015 and immediately after starting working closely with the uh, faculty, George Panos from Hellas uh, branch. Then I became an associate of Hellas branch and in 2019 I attained my diploma in MDP. Uh, shortly after I started my master's on pain sciences and uh, recently I became a faculty. That's awesome. Awesome. Well, you were introduced to McKenzie really close to after the time you graduated and really quick you got the diploma and all of that. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, I think that my own pain experience drove me there. And immediately yeah. after, I had all the drive to do everything pretty quick. Yes, that's awesome. And so you did your master's in pain science. So it looks like you like... a to talk about pain, right? That's our topic today. So do you want to get started just talking about how complex is pain? Yes, of course. Despite the fact that we try to simplify things, you know, we have to admit that pain is complex, you know? And there are many reasons for that. But uh, I would say probably the strongest one would be that uh, pain is a unique experience of uh, each individual. So it's different to everyone. And uh, after George Engel's proposal about the biopsychosocial model, um, that he actually said that every medical condition is an interaction of biological, psychological, and social uh, uh, influences. You know, this was a groundbreaking theory that uh, took, brought up, you know, all the complexity of pain. So, however, there. It's been about 45 years since it was suggested. Uh, you know, there is still a huge evidence practice gap, uh, as it happens actually in medical sciences, because uh, people still have difficulties to apply biopsychosocial practices, uh, have difficulties in assessing and managing painful conditions, and understanding the unique experience of each individual. We assess it mostly through our biomedical. Uh, education and probably put uh, social uh, and psychological aspects of pain on the corner. Yeah. And and why do you feel like there is this this gap between evidence and practice? Like in, what can we do to try to close this gap? Mm -hmm. 
Uh, actually, clinical medicine always has some evidence practice gap. You know, that's that's uh, what's happening actually in all medical sciences. Um, but uh, this gap actually represents the disconnection between uh, evidence, wh what the evidence say, and what we actually do in practice. So if uh, the, the gap is uh, widened or uh, it evolves to a point of time that practice contradicts to what evidence say, then we have a problem, you know, and we start uh, giving low value care and this becomes a norm. And there are actually many reasons for that. Uh, firstly, I would say, you know, our educational background, because it's much more biomedically orient oriented on biology and uh, we tend to educate people about social and psychological factors as epiphenomena or distractions. Um, there is also a lack of valid tools uh, to assess psychological and mostly social features of pain. And uh, in front of uh, the, this difficulty to understand the psychological and social aspects uh, of pain, you know, people become inventive. And we actually use uh, tools that they are not so evidence-based in order to achieve, you know, to holistically uh, assess and manage painful conditions. After that, uh, I would say there is a lack of education between different uh, health specialties and probably lack of uh, health uh, systems infrastructures to adapt biopsychosocial uh, practices. But uh, in order to understand the gap there is between uh, what we do and what the evidence say, and see how by psychosocially oriented we are in our practice, uh, we would probably uh, reassess what uh, is pain, uh, what is health, what are the treatment and the treatment goals, uh, who is responsible for the treatment outcomes, and uh, how does a healthcare system drive uh, drives care? Yes, I have a few questions. <laughs> of course, um, of course. So, um, so what would you suggest, for example, for clinicians that are seeing these patients and we know that there is this huge um, influence of the, the psychological part, the, the biopsychosocial influence, what would you suggest to these clinicians um, would they do to fill this gap? Um, because do you feel like we, we are missing like some education and some appropriate tools? What would you suggest? Yes. Firstly, um, I think that, uh, you know, clinicians need actually a framework, you know, need the context in order to use mm -hmm. it as a foundation because there are no by psychosocial recipes. Let's face it, you know, there are not protocols or anything that you can do. Mm -hmm. that, can make you biopsychosocially oriented. So firstly, we need a, a framework. And after that, uh, we need to um, reassess what we feel that uh, health is actually, what, are, what is treatment, what are the treatment goals? Is the clinician responsible for the treatment outcomes or the patient? And mm -hmm. uh, in general, you know, try to remodel how we think about pain and how we act on painful conditions. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and you're going to actually talk about the MDT uh, biopsychosocial framework, like we were just talking about framework. So how do you feel like the MDT fit in this biopsychosocial framework? Mm -hmm. Actually, there are several studies um, that uh, so that MDT is associated with uh, psychosocial outcomes uh, in terms of uh, improvement of fear avoidance, uh, pain self-efficacy, uh, psychological distress, somatization, and have a significant uh, and clinically important difference in uh, psychosocial in patients with high psychosocial risk. But I would say that the uh, MDT framework could fill this gap because there are 
some core principles uh, on MDT system that can you know uh, fit on the biopsychosocial framework. Firstly, we spend a lot of time you know taking a thorough history and laying a foundation for a strong therapeutic alliance. After that, we empower patients in order to facilitate self-management. Uh, we have also a tolerance in uh, non-pathanatomical diagnosis. We do not tend to react like uh, technicians using protocols, but we tailor uh, assessment and management. We need to educate people uh, about the problem itself, you know, predisposing factors, what uh, they should probably limit for a while, what, what they should do. Uh, we also use a very powerful tool, which is exercise, and which is probably the most uh, evidence-based tool that we have for most musculoskeletal uh, diseases. Uh, then we have self-management strategies is the key. We try to make patient uh, independent, and uh, this promotes, you know, uh, by psychosocial aspects of management. And then I would say that MDT is uh, probably a behavioral modification approach as it helps patients to self-manage and even self-monitor uh, his symptoms, his hair symptoms. Yes, absolutely. And all these, these principles, they fit perfectly, right? With this biopsychosocial um, that sometimes we are even doing following the method. We don't realize that we are actually doing all of this and trying to reduce the, 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 the patient fear of moving and empowering them and giving them tools so they can be in control of their uh, symptoms and they know what to do. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's awesome. Yes, exactly. No, MDT has a, a powerful mechanism and uh, a great potential to be used as a biopsychosocial uh, assessment and management tool. Yeah, yes. And I know that we, we talked a little bit before about the drivers of pain and disability. Do you want to talk a little bit about them? Yes, of course. So, um, firstly, we have the pain mechanisms. Uh, and there, there are three pain mechanisms described in the literature. The first one is a nociceptive pain mechanism. And I believe uh, almost all clinicians are aware of this. You know, uh, it's probably the likely the, the primary driver of its MDT syndromes and other classifications. And it's pain caused from uh, actual damage or threat and, uh, to um, our body that uh, makes, you know, activates this, the, the nociceptors. Then we have a neuropathic mechanism in which uh, we have a lesion or a disease of the somatosensory nervous system, which is actually affects the neural tissue. And in this category, patients typically experience distinct set uh, of symptoms such as burning or electrical sensations or pain that is caused uh, from non-painful stimuli, allodynia. No? It's uh, associated with uh, increased uh, drug prescriptions, many visits to health care professionals. The symptoms tend, tend to persist and become chronic. And we also can have sleep disturbances, anxiety, and depression. You know, they tend to be more severe, let's say. And then we have the quite recently introduced mechanism, which is nociplastic pain. And when we talk about nociplastic pain, we're actually uh, talking about altered nociception, with sensitization being probably the major underlying mechanism. And uh, there we do not have any actual damage or uh, there is no threat. So, and there is no lesion or disease to the neuropathic system, but the nociceptors are, are activated. And uh, this is. Uh, Probably the mechanism that we are dealing uh, in most of the persistent or chronic pain situation. And uh, it actually can mimic very well uh, nociceptive pain. Uh, so 
it's very important to understand firstly the pain mechanism because this will actually define a lot uh, your prognosis. So from your MDT assessment, you have uh, symptoms quality, onset, how they, did they begin, uh, time phase, uh, you do have uh, uh, other components of, from your assessment, uh, from your physical examination. And you can actually use uh, questionnaires like uh, DN4 or pain detect in order to differentiate between uh, nociceptive and neuropathic pain. And you have central sensitization inventory to assess uh, the existence of nociplastic mechanism. It's very important to understand that even those mechanisms can interact and you can have a mixed uh, pain condition. It's quite common, actually. Um, then, apart from the pain mechanisms, you have uh, the contextual drivers. And I will start by this because I think uh, that they are, you know, the ones that they left in the corner and uh, very easily overlooked. You know, the social factors, as we call them, to uh, the biopsychosocial model. So their influence is huge. It's much more from what we can think, because actually, you know, the context uh, uh, interacts with behavior. You know, behavior is built through our context, through the social elements. And we're not talking only about work and family. We're, working, uh, we're talking about the... Uh, socioeconomic status, uh, we're talking about education attainment, we're talking about uh, a neighborhood, social capital, built environment, and the things that build our actual context. Uh, in sociology studies, actually, health uh, and wellness can be directly or indirectly attributed to social factors. Uh, for more than 40% from what the papers say. Wow, yeah. that's a so, lot. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot. And it's much more from what uh, we think, but we tend to see it, you yeah. know, from our own yeah. uh, perspective. Yeah. So, yeah, social uh, factors can influence actually your uh, outcomes a lot because we've seen, and they, some of them have been actually correlated with uh, chronic low back pain or other diseases. And we've seen that uh, economic resources, you know, allow them to engage in healthy behaviors. Or uh, we've seen that educated people have a tendency to um, have an increased financial, uh, emotional, psychological, and social resources. So they, they allow them to make better behavior-based uh, lifestyle choices in general. And on the other hand, you know, uh, less education, lower education levels uh, would mean that the people uh, might have less uh, health literacy, which is associated with uh, greater levels of uh, medication misuse, opioids, you know, uh, and these people tend to have uh, more uh, chronic pain. So in our MDT assessment, uh, we have to understand uh, the life-work balance probably the employment status, their leisure activities, and most of all, you know, social connectedness, interaction with other individuals and in the social context, because we've actually seen, interestingly, that uh, social pain, that it's caused for, from isolation, exclusion, or a loss, you know, actually shares the same neurobiological mechanism. And it's uh, mm, really important. Yeah, yeah, to assess the context. Because we have to remember that every person that comes to our clinic comes with his or her context. Yeah, so in those cases, so you you identify that they have these like social, um, social components impacting the outcome. So how do you approach them? How do you treat them? I imagine you have a different approach than than the, the 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 traditional way of treating, right? So, what would you do in that case? The hard truth is that we actually do not have valid tools to measure them, and mm -hmm. uh, we also do not have probably the resources in a clinical setting to um, 
to manage them. So what we tend to do is probably understand and see how they affect our prognosis or our outcomes. But in the clinical setting, mm -hmm. we can, cannot do a lot because they are mostly driven you know, from social policies, governmental policies, and other stuff that are beyond our clinic setting. Mm -hmm. So that's, yeah, that's a complicated topic because we know these components influence the treatment, but as you said, sometimes I feel like it's hard to identify them. And then once you identify, what can you do to really change? Because it's a way more complex situation when it's their education, is their employment, their um, economics and neighborhood. So like, how do you, how you know that impacts in your treatment, but like, what can you really do to change that? It's complicated. Yeah, it's very complicated. Right. But actually, as you're mentioning education, you can do something about it. You can educate mm -hmm. them about their pain, you know, and how they mm -hmm. can self-monitor or self-management self-manage their pain yeah yeah that's true do you i i have a question for something that you mentioned before i want to i was going to ask before i forget but do you have um anything else about these contextual drivers to talk about before i ask you that question um in general i think that the, it's a field that uh, needs to be you know discovered especially from uh, mm -hmm. uh, medical sciences to see we, we need to come together with a sociologist sociologist and see how this uh, can affect our, our outcomes because uh, let's face it you know social determinants of uh, health is a very big part of the picture and if you overlook it you are missing you know this big part of the picture yeah, as you said, 40% is like a big, big number. And, yeah. and like, do you have someone, it's, it's hard because do you have someone that you refer them to? Or, um, as you, I, I mean, I don't know. Is there anything else that you do that you would um, suggest uh, the clinicians to do to try to help them, these patients? Um... I actually do not have any suggestions for, you know, the management of this component. Yeah. But um, mm -hmm. for sure, you know, clinicians uh, need to uh, think, about, think about things in co community settings, what they can do mm -hmm. the yeah. community setting or how they can interact, you know, with people who drive policies in order to make the change on this factor. Because it, it's actually, you know, like people that they're living around a polluted river. So if they drink water, they become ill. So you can find, you know, a medicine to uh, treat this illness. But if you go before that, you should, you know, uh, do something about the river. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and what I was going to ask you before we keep going on the, the drivers, it's from the nauseoplastic, uh, did I say it right? Nauseoplastic pain? Nauseoplastic, yes. That you said that it can mimic the nauseoceptive pain. And then you mentioned some tools, some questionnaires, right? That you use to differentiate those. Is that's how you differentiate them? Uh, no, in order to differentiate nociplastic pain, the first thing you need to know is that uh, when we're dealing with nociplastic uh, mechanism, it's probably persistent pain. So you probably need to have pain for more than three months, as literature says, or you probably have uh, another chronic condition that is happening to the person. So from the history itself, you can, uh, you know, understand if uh, nociplastic pain is a potential mechanism to the pain condition. I mostly use, you know, uh, history and physical uh, examination components, but, uh, you know, the tools are, are very useful in more complex situations because, as uh, I said before, you know, this mechanism can interact. person might have 
all the three mechanisms or just two of it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You might see, for example, in a derangement that uh, it has, you know, a persistent pain component. So it's been there for, let's say, eight months. So you deal with derangement and it's actually, it's behaving like a derangement, but you do not have, you know, the same result as you did have, you know, with an acute, let's say, derangement. So you need to reassess the pain mechanism. And on the physical exam, why would you, why would you see that would make you differentiate or thinking more about nociceptive versus nociceptive? Is more like the time? It's more the time frame. First, it's the time frame. Uh, then, on the physical exam, uh, I would assess, you know, the movements. If I do not see, you know major loss uh, of a movement or obstruction, then this awares me more about the nociceptive component. If I see, you know, uh, fear avoidance or uh, maladaptive behaviors like people rubbing their back immediately after, you know, this uh, can show me that I might be dealing with a, a nociplastic situation. Mm-hmm. And that nociplastic mechanism actually interacts. And then how do you approach them, each of them, like in a treatment situation? Would you treat them like as a normal derangement and try to reduce it? Like how do you approach them? Okay. So if I have, uh, if I believe that I'm dealing with a, a nociplastic mechanism, if it's a derangement, I will deal with the, uh, the derangement, you know, use directional preference. But uh, I will say to the patient that, okay, we're dealing with uh, something that uh, can actually respond to a specific exercise. But because you have had this for a long time, this uh, has sensitized a little bit uh, your nervous system. So in order to deal with this sensitization, Apart from this specific exercise, uh, we need to follow some uh, more exercises so that I would, you know, expose you, expose you them to more loading uh, uh, progressively and uh, um, improve their pain threshold. So I would focus mostly on what we call recovery of function. It makes sense. It's almost like you are training their system to to tolerate pain, right? Is that exactly the exactly? Yeah. Okay. It's like that in a way because you are trying, you know, to go closely to the threshold. You know, try to load them, but before they have, you know, an onset. Interestingly, also, you have to educate the person about um, the nociplastic mechanism because we we know it can be triggered by physical factors if they overdo something because their threshold is lower and they have to know that also stress situations you know negative feelings can also uh, evoke you know this mechanism and whatever affects mood actually it can uh, evoke a recurrence or an episode so the person needs to be aware that it's not only the physical factors, what they do. It requires a little bit more of education than exactly. just the, the... Do you feel like the nociceptive, they just respond better to exercise? Uh, and they, they are the ones that reduce quickly and, and they are good versus the nociceptive that take a little bit longer uh, to respond? Do you feel you like... dealing with... Uh, a derangement, yes, they would respond quicker, you know, if we were dealing only with nociceptive pain and we have a derangement. If we're dealing with a derangement that has nociceptive and nociplastic driver, then they will respond probably if you are able to educate them and manage them well, but in a longer time frame. And that's where uh, the prognosis comes, you know. Because if you know it from the start, you can educate the person that, you know, we're dealing with something that has also sensitized your nervous system. So, so this, we need longer time. Mm -hmm. 
Yes. In the neuropathic pain, I think that we are more, not more used to, but I feel like simpler to understand when you have something neural, uh, a neural component that I, I feel like it's, it's more, it, I don't know, I think it's more sim simpler to understand. Do you want to mention anything about the intervention here? Like, do you have any specific approach when it's neuro, neuro, neuropathic pain? So or driver, if we're talking, like you said. Yes. So if, if we're dealing with neuropathic driver, uh, first I, I want to see if it responds to load or mm -hmm. uh, if it is, uh, for example, if we're dealing with a radiculopathy, if it's an MUR, mechanically unresponsive radicular syndrome. So firstly, we need to see if it responds to, to loading at this timestamp. So if it, um, if it responds, then you reduce a derangement with a neuropathic component. If it's not, then you have to consider, you know, different uh, uh, interventions, like, you know, uh, epidural uh, injections or steroids, if you're talking, you know, for other uh, neuropathic conditions. But it also definitely uh, affects your uh, time frame and your prognosis. Mm -hmm. Yes. And I was going to ask you, what do you feel the most in which one of these drivers do you feel the patients, it's more common on your practice? Uh, in my practice, I would say, you know, because uh, I'm working in a clinic that, that we see mostly, you know, complex situation, I would say uh, nociceptive, neuropathic and nociplastic. They always have some nociplastic component. All of them all together. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's might be nociceptive, but also nociplastic. It's very yeah. rare for me to see, you know, someone who has mostly nociceptive driver because we see mostly chronic patients. Yeah, so that's what I was going to ask. It would be more acute pain, the nociceptive. Like if it's pure nociceptive, would that be more ac acute pain? Uh, yes, but not always. Not always. Okay. Yes, it's not the it's not the rule, you know. the The mechanism it's not you know uh, driven by only one factor. It's driven by a lot, you know, and it's a driver uh, interacts with the others. So there are many there are many things in there that can interact because I've seen you know uh, chronic conditions that are actually simple derangements, you know. They just do lateral movements or uh, extensions and they poof, they resolve in uh, two weeks' time or three weeks. Yes. So this can happen. Our theme is complex. <laughs> uh, uh, and so let's move on to the next driver that you're going to talk before I came back and ask you a bunch of questions. <laughs> well, uh, okay, so... Uh, the next driver is the cognitive and emotional factors. I know uh, most people are aware of them, you know, and we're talking actually about uh, the psychological factors. Uh, we're talking about uh, fear avoidance, pain catastrophization, poor coping, low self-efficacy. Uh, but we know that these drivers are potentially modifiable. So it's very important to try to modify those factors because actually uh, cognitive factors, you know, drive behaviors. So if you do not manage cognitive factors, then the person uh, begins to have, you know, certain illness behaviors that uh, at some point can be more difficult to manage. Apart from cognition, you have also emotional factors that it's we're dealing with uh, negative emotions such as uh, stress, anxiety, depression that is caused due to pain, pain, distress, anger that can also affect your outcomes. Uh, to this driver, we have done a little bit of progress because we have uh, actually some tools that we can use on our practice. We have start back tool that uh, it can inform us about, you know, the psychosocial risk. So we know that if we have a patient with high psychosocial risk, if we are not uh, seeing the, the the outcomes, the treatment outcomes that we expect, we need probably to interact with other clinicians. We have to think about 
multidisciplinary pay, uh, approaches. And we have other tools like uh, Beck Depression Inventory, uh, Pain Catastrophizing Scale, uh, Fear avoid Avoidance Belief Questionnaire, and others. Yeah. So you use those tools and then you you see if you can help them and then if you feel like you can change these factors, then you refer them to like the appropriate professional that can help them. Yes, exactly. Okay, awesome. I'm going to ask you later if you can give me the name of the tool so I can put there so people can check because I think it's very helpful for clinicians to kind of take a look and have a better way to assess the patients, um, right? Of course, of course, they're very useful, you know. You might spend a little bit time, you know, a little bit of time, or it might be tiring for some patients to complete questionnaires, but it will be very helpful for your practice. And when you, you mentioned the emotional and cognitive factors, what do you do when you are treating them? Do you have like a, a different approach? It's more education. Uh, how how do you do to help them? You know, in general, in my practice, uh, because I'm dealing with many chronic uh, situations, I spend, you know, a lot of time in educating people. I think, you know, 40% of my assessment, I would say assessment and management on the first and in the initial uh, visit, it's uh, on educating people. Mm-hmm. Because we've seen that um, education is uh, probably the most effective tool that we have in order to tackle uh, these factors. But uh, it's uh, it's not only education. Uh, other things can happen also, you know, changes in the life of the patient can, you know, boost uh, and uh, help on these uh, factors. But in general, you know, education is a very powerful tool. Uh, also, exercise, you know, as a, as a tool. Uh, because we, we know that exercise has an effect on um, psychological uh, factors. So exercise itself, you know, you know, getting involved, being active, trying to change things, trying to handle things, can change uh, the emotional part. Or yeah, cognitive also. absolutely. Yes. Um, and then let's go to the last driver, comorbidities. Yes, exactly. So um, comorbidities are also an essential driver of pain and disability. And if we could, um, I would divide them in two categories, you know, uh, physical uh, conditions and mental conditions that can interact with your pain situation. So you might have, you know, other chronic pathologies that have already sensitized the nervous system. So their new pain might become more easily persistent, or you might have this nociplastic mechanism before even the three months. You know? Then you have uh, other pathologies like uh, diabetes uh, or uh, uh, hypothyroidism that uh, can um, can be can interact with your diagnostic classification because we've seen that they are associated with certain pathologies uh, like tendinopathy, frozen shoulder. And then you have other conditions like uh, past surgery, you know, osteoarthritis on peripheral uh, joints that uh, can affect your examination or your management strategies. So there you might uh, not uh, be able to use, you know, the strategies that you were thinking. For example, a person might not be able, you know, to do extension in full range. So you need to modify it, mid-range, sustain, let's say, or in standing, or obesity, you know, people with uh, low levels of activity might have difficulties in doing so many exercises. So you need to pace a little bit on these conditions. Mm -hmm. So you, you, have, you kind of take sorry. a look at them. No, sorry. And, and then you just take a look at them and try to adapt to help them with the conditions they already have. Exactly, exactly. You must 
tailor, you know, your examination and management on the patient, on the patient's needs. And then you have, you know, mental illnesses, and this is also a, a dark field of uh, medicine because we actually do not know how we should, you know, uh, treat uh, people with uh, mental illnesses, diagnosed mental illnesses. Uh, we know some things about clinical depression, you know, that, this, that the persons with clinical de depression tend to have uh, more persistent pain, you know, tend to are susceptible to chronic pain. But on other mental health conditions, we do not have many details. So for sure, you need to interact, you know, associate with a, a mental health professional. Do you use any specific tool to identify or just the, the traditional questions we ask on the, the assessment form? Like, do you have suicidal thoughts? Do you, you know, do you have like these questions that we ask or do you have anything specific to screen that i do not have anything specific to be honest because you know i already give them uh, certain questionnaires about uh, uh, psychological factors so i tend to ask them thoroughly through my history for every system i would say so okay what about your thyroid what about your cardiovascular system what about your lungs what about your stomach etc and then I would certainly ask them about medication, other the medication, because some people, you know, tend to forget, you know, what they what they have, it's if they have it for a long time. So I would say mostly through your history taking, you can uh, see things, or when you start loading them. If we are talking about um, a physical condition, you know, you would see that they are struggling, you know, to do the exercise that you propose. So you will ask them what's going on and you will modify it. Apart from this, you, you, we need also to remember about uh, sleep, sleep quality and quantity, because we've seen that uh, this also uh, has a, an impact on our uh, recovery, uh, recovery uh, rate. A lot of details to pay attention when you are screening the patient. Yeah, yeah. And I know we 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 talked also before about the cornerstones of MDT. I don't know if it's that you already mentioned some of the uh, the factors that the 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 MDT and the biopsychosocial framework. Do you want to talk about the cornerstones, or do you feel like you already covered that? Um, I would like just to notice a few things because you know. We broke everything into pieces, so we need probably to bring them back. So, yeah, uh, sounds good. Say, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, the strongest components of your MDD assessment, what you need to focus on. Firstly, uh, try to build a, a strong therapeutic alliance. You know, it's the it's very important to bring the therapeutic alliance. Uh, not only because you need it, you know, in order to assess thoroughly your patient, but because uh, it's the foundry of your patient's compliance. And remember, you know, MDT uses self-management tool, so you need the patient to be compliant. Uh, in order to do that, do not use your assessment form as a checklist. You know, try to make a, remember that your your session is a social interaction. Get to know the person that it's standing in front of you and try to build the trust, you know, be polite, be honest and try to build trust. That's very important in every social interaction. So it is also in your session. Then try to break the clinical presentation into pieces, understand the problem before even trying, you know, to, uh, to manage it and prioritize your management of drivers and pain, uh, drivers of pain and disability and um, define prognosis that's very very important you know when you finish with your history thinking and your physical exam try to think before you do anything uh, how's my prognosis what do i expect from this patient and if your prognosis uh, is poor just try to think uh, what are the drivers that potentially lead to that and how or by whom can they be managed then 
try to focus on individuals' goals because, you know, we tend to focus mostly on pain or function, but the patient might, you know, need something else from us. So remember to ask the question, what, what do you expect? What do you, would you need from our consultation? And uh, uh, last but not least, I would say, you know, uh, share, of course, decision-making, you know, try to make decisions with your patient involved and share knowledge, you know, because patients can understand, you know, very complex uh, things if you explain them appropriately. So try to explain, do not use dangerous language or complex uh, definitions and bring the, uh, the patient in the decision game. You know, if you have some tablets, you know, ask him, so what can we do about that? I think all of these points, very, very important to have a successful treatment. Um, and especially the patient's goals, as you said, sometimes we forget about ask their goals to tailor the treatment for what they want, not what, what we think they need based on our assessment. So I think that's very, very important. Um, so to wrap up, what is the take home message? Okay. Remember, pain is complex, but uh, we need to simplify things. So in order to simplify things, uh, we need a framework. And MDTA, in my opinion, is an excellent framework in order to make your approach more biopsychosocially oriented. So use it wisely, self-reflect, try what uh, your patient is trying to say, and move out uh, of your biome biomedical comfort zone. You know, because it's a comfort mm. zone. <laughs> yes, 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 absolutely. And now let me transition to the final questions. Final questions. Um, so what is your favorite resource of information? Is there anything that you recommend our listeners? Um, I'm using a lot, you know, technology has helped us a lot, you know, to interact with other clinicians, you know, educate or find out about new things that are there. So... I would suggest, you know, social media, you know, it's a great resource. Follow the right people and you will find the right information. Uh, I also use, you know, Google notifications, Google Scholar notifications. So you put in, you know, some keywords and you get notification whenever a, a, there is something out there new. And um, I use mostly those resources, you know, I can think of many books, but, uh, you know, I think that everything is changing. But also try, you know, to read, you know, literature from other uh, sciences like sociology or psychology. That helped me a lot to understand many things. Because remember, as clinicians, we tend to see uh, things from our frame, you know, and we need to see the big picture. Yeah. Sometimes I think it's very easy to just stay focused on that, on the mechanics and forget about everything else that that encompass, in, encompasses the patient, the care. Like we are, we have a lot of other factors interacting, impacting our care, and we are very good at mechanics. And sometimes we we don't pay attention to the other factors, or we don't know what to do or how to do it. So I think it's just good to talk about it and give the clinicians a few few ideas few tools that they can try um, to help the patient when we when we see that it's not as straightforward as as we would like to be because as we said pain is complex um, and what would be the best advice that you give to clinicians that are starting their careers okay. uh I would share a piece of advice that was given to me and helped me a lot. Okay, try, as my tutor in my diploma said, John Thompson, uh, try to be very open on what others do and be very critical on what you do. And I think this uh, will help you a lot to improve. Awesome. And the last question, what personal qualities or abilities that you think are important to become a successful physical therapist? Okay, I would say honest, honesty, you know, being curious, you must be curious, you know, the, in order to improve, always be very critical on what you do, self-reflect, 
use you know self reflection in order to prove because you know uh, experience experience does not matter if you do not self reflect and whenever you deal with the difficult patient the one that you cannot get the outcomes that you want just go back and think what should i have done uh, differently and remember when you see those patients this will make you better you know every difficult patient is a is a step on your uh, improvement yeah and then you can try to do different with the next one exactly so many patients that when you think back and then with the things that we know today we just think oh how many patients i could helped in the past if i knew what i know today and and that's that's the process of improving and it's gonna happen it's a learning curve yeah from the yeah, yeah. from the first patient to the last yeah yes um so then is if people want to learn more about you or contact you is there a way they can find you yes of course they can find me on social media uh, as uh, thanos condos and uh, or they can send me an email you know uh, it's tha.kontos at gmail.com awesome well i appreciate so much um you taking the time to come here and share with us talk about this this complex topic and and um i'm just very happy to have you here and help us understand a little bit more about pain Thank you very much. It was uh, nice to be here. Questions, suggestions, or topics you want to hear about, talk to me on ptprotalk.com. Join our email list to receive updates and new episodes and subscribe here. Tell your friends about it and be sure to share. Also, leave us a review and let us know what you think. We are going to publish today's video recording on my YouTube channel, so you can check the link out in the show notes. Thanks for joining us and I'll see you next time.